This episode of the EdTech Podcast is sponsored by Learnosity. Learnosity is the global leader in assessment solutions. Serving over 700 customers and more than 40 million learners, its mission is to advance education and learning worldwide with best-in-class technology. Learnosity's specialised expertise and pre-built assessment APIs make it easy for modern learning platforms to quickly launch fully featured products, scale on demand and always meet fast-evolving market needs. Visit learnosity.com today to discover how. Hello everyone and welcome to the EdTech Podcast, where our mission is to improve the dialogue between ed and tech for better innovation and impact. A big shout out to Lenosity for sponsoring this week's episode. In this episode, part of our series in collaboration with Educate Ventures, Rose, Kareen and Jim question whether Oak Academy, an organisation providing an online classroom and resource hub and set up in the UK during the pandemic, has shifted substantially from well-intentioned response to COVID to something more challenging for the edtech sector and potentially those it serves. US listeners and those around the world, I'd love your take on this issue of where quality content comes from and how much is driven by government, how much by teacher curation and lesson planning, and how much from the private marketplace of edtech. Listening to this episode, I certainly learnt new aspects to the Oak Academy discussion, for example, around ownership of IP that I wasn't aware of yet. Listen in for some great responses from educators, edtech owners and the political view. And finally, shout out to Rose, Kareen and Jim for also digging into the world of ChatGPT and how we should start thinking of that within our classrooms and for our young people. Enjoy and let's get straight into it. Welcome to Kareen and Rose's EdTech Roundup, a new series of the EdTech podcast designed for educators, learners, parents and anyone who wants to know how to get the best from technology when learning or teaching. In each episode in this series, we'll spend about 40 minutes looking at what's in the news. We'll have a chat with someone from the world of EdTech or discuss a product review. We'll give you our topical top tech tips for the coming week and discuss the questions that you send to us. So who are Karine and Rose? Well, I'm Rose Luckin. I'm a professor at University College London and an entrepreneur with decades of experience in the world of educational technology and artificial intelligence. And I've also taught in further education, higher education and in schools. I'm Karine George and I'm the Chief Educational Advisor for Educate Ventures. Prior to that, I was a head teacher for more than 20 years, a strategic lead for an authority and more importantly, a parent of two children. I teach, train, write and speak nationally and internationally on educational leadership, parental engagement and the use of technology in teaching and learning. So what's in the news? Starting off with a bit of a roundup here. I, I don't think anybody could possibly have missed the excitement and also some trepidation about Chat GPT, the latest AI to hit the airwaves. I was intrigued to see that in the Times, uh, Chat GPT was described as an artificial intelligence program banned by schools in New York because it could put an end to homework, according to Elon Musk. ChatGPT can produce fast, accurate pieces of work that mimic a particular requested style of writing. The city's education department has barred it from school devices and networks because of fears it could be used by children to write essays and answer questions. 
raises the issue that we need to rethink assessment and consider the impact that AI will have on assessment. Well, I've been saying AI is changing assessment and needs to change assessment at a much faster pace. So I was fascinated to read that. I'm sure there'll be lots of people, mainly students, who'd love to see the end of homework. But I don't think something like chat GPT needs to be seen in that negative way. It's a type of AI that could be super helpful. And it's a type of AI that young people need to understand because it's going to be there in the workplace when they leave school. But for today, we'd like to focus on another very topical issue, and that is Oak National Academy. Following the announcement to allocate £43 million of government funding to make it part of a new government arm's length body. There'll be a lot of teachers going, £43 million is a lot of money, won't they, Carrie? So serious concerns have been raised by the publishing and the ed tech sector about the decision. And Jeff Barton, who, as you know, is the General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders, warned that this move could make it harder for schools to recruit and retain because it's taking it could take away their autonomy. You know, we don't want a clickbait curriculum where we're just picking out these um, resources. So what should we be mindful of as the government plans are called into question? And should we as teachers, parents, and in fact, anyone involved in education sector really be concerned about this forthcoming decision? Absolutely. I think we have to be concerned. I mean, just for a bit of history. So Oak National Academy, which is often referred to as Oaks, an online educational resources platform. It was launched in April 2022 as a response to the problems that we experienced in the pandemic. Um, It was available and still is available to schools free of charge. And the original funding, of course, came through the Government Coronavirus Act, so it was emergency funding, and that was £6.4 million. And that funding mechanism waived the requirement for procurement that would normally be in place as part of a proper tendering process, which I think does raise some questions. But, Kareen, the White Paper's put a whole new frame on this, really, hasn't it? Yes, it definitely has. You know, last year in the school's White Paper, we were told that Oak would be incorporated into this new ALB, this arm's length body, and would be awarded £43 million in an initial round of And let's say that number again. I mean, goodness, you know, because where is this £43 million coming from? But £43 million in initial round of funding. Now, before those teachers get excited that they might be able to, or head teachers be, you know, concerned with some of the things they need, like training or infrastructure or any of the other things that they're worried about um, spending their money on it. If it goes towards this arm length body, you know, people have become a little worried. Other people who create content for education, like video resources and lessons, etc., are all concerned because initially the um, oak grew out of prof- professional generosity, didn't it? Last year, the white paper, we were told that Oak would be incorporated into this new arm's length body and be awarded this money and funding. Now, other people who create content for education, video resources, lessons, etc., can still have their material to be part of the Oak platform, but they have to sign over the ownership. Now, in other words, Oak will own the intellectual property of the content. Another interesting fact is that Ofsted will hold a role, or it's suggested that Ofsted will hold a role on Oak's subject expert panels. And I think if that's the case, that's become a real a real red flag. Yes. I mean, it does sound a little bit worrying, doesn't it? And I know that you've been out and about talking to some teachers and head teachers to find out a bit more about this, because on the one hand, it's a free resource. 
schools are strapped for cash. Could that be useful? But on the other hand, there are worries. Is it going to cramp competition in the UK? Is that going to impact negatively on other educational technology providers and reduce the variety and range of things that are available to schools? There's lots of questions that I think need to be asked. But what have you found when you've been talking to teachers and head teachers? Well, now that's been really interesting. Many of the teachers told me that obviously their schools used Oak Academy resources during COVID as a stopgap when they were grappling with this multitude of problems as their schools closed their doors and moved to online learning. And remember, that was with very little time to prepare for this significant educational change. Now, initially, turning to prepared lessons was particularly helpful in supporting staff as they grappled with the technician, uh, with the technology, sorry, and the well-being issues of children. Because you'll remember we saw some um, schools that didn't have the infrastructures going out and supporting, even with food packages and so forth. And then as the um, infection rate soared and teachers became um, unwell, the resources were useful, particularly to cover teachers who at a moment's notice were asked to deliver lessons in areas they were less familiar with. Can I just interrupt there? I think that's a really important point, isn't it, Karine? It was given with generosity. So teachers put resources up there. The EdTech community put resources up there. There was a lot of goodwill originally, wasn't there? Now, what these teachers said to me um, that I talked to, and as I said, I talked to a range of teachers and head teachers in primary, secondary uh, primary, secondary and inspectors, uh, they said the lessons were functional because they were done, you know, as emergency lessons. Overwhelmingly, the teachers mentioned the bit that came out with for me was that with anything centralised like Oak, it didn't adjust for context. Importantly, no account was taken for the readability factor of the material on screen. Consider that we've had all this debate about concerns raised about a quarter of secondary school children deemed to have reading ages below 11. You know, it was aimed at the middle. So, in fact, while the teachers I spoke to initially turned to Oak's resource as a starting point, they felt that to meet the differing needs of their children, because some children just couldn't access it, it you know, they couldn't they couldn't do a one size fits all lesson. It didn't save them time, as promised, because they still had to adjust. And certainly, if they were to use it now, it wouldn't save them time because they want to, you know, professional teachers, their craft is to develop lessons that meet the needs of their learners. Um, the differing needs of their learners in the context they are to achieve the vision for their community of how, and that's what good teachers do. And so, you know, what what the concern was for them is that something that grew out of this fantastic goodwill is being morphed into something that's going to be different. Now, one um, teacher quoted for me, uh, and this is direct quote from a um, a head teacher in uh, Cornwall, I think what's important is the government needs to listen to listen more to what schools actually need than to assume they know what schools need. And they need to be talking to the people who are actually delivering the teaching and learning. That makes so much sense to me. Really, how can we make decisions about what's most suitable without talking to the people who are actually going to be using it? It's really interesting, Karine, to hear those comments from teachers and head teachers about this issue. Um, and actually, we're really lucky today because we've also got a policymaker uh, here in our lovely Zoom room studio with us. And so we're going to stay on the subject of Oak uh, today. And we're delighted to welcome Lord Jim Knight to our lovely Zoom room. You've been involved in education and in particular educational policy for many years, both as an MP, Minister for Schools, now in the House of Lords. 
Welcome to Karina and Rose's EdTech Chat. I want to ask, start by asking you a question. Why, why do you believe there's so much controversy about Oak National Academy? It's doing a remarkable job of uniting a whole bunch of people, the Publishers Association, the British Education Supplies mm. Association, um, conservative backbench peers in a debate yesterday, along with some of the more you know left-wing former teacher union heads on the Labour benches. So um, the, there's lots of people concerned about it. Why? As you said, Rose, in talking about its history, you know, when it started back in 2020, there was a lot of support for it. Um, the founders, you know, Matt Hood, who was a big driving force behind it, has a lot of friends in politics and, you know, Reach2 and United Learning and some of those, some of the others who collaborated around its formation, I think did a, did a fantastic job in creating something that was one of the really useful resources for people. Um, so there's there's no questioning then of those organisations using some of their own resource supplemented by some emergency money that was um, paid by the government in order to help to do that. The announcement of the formation of this arm's length body as Oak was uh, came in the white paper. It took several months. Yeah, I think it was. The white paper was probably in March last year, and it wasn't until mm-hmm. November that we had the business case that justified spending the money, the £43 million pounds over right. two years. So it felt like the business case had been put together kind of in a bit of a hurry in in, a, in retrospect in order to justify a decision that had already been made. John Cole, Sir John Coles, who heads United Learning, withdrew from it. Um, That's interesting. Know, he, he'd been talking to uh, the then schools minister who'd said, you know, this is a, a quote from a, an article in Schools Week. Um, it, John says, he gave me a clear sense that his aim was to promote his own view of the curriculum in this country. John didn't want to be part of you know, what he describes as something that only a to- totalitarian government would do, withdrew United support and all of its resources. And um, that was one of the voices going, hang on a minute, Do we, is there a problem that £43 million needs to fix in terms of quality? You know, there's a rich array of different educational resources, both paper-based and digital, that are available, available for teachers to use, um, some of which is poor quality, some of which is great yeah. quality, but there's plenty of great quality stuff that's out. So I don't think there's a quality problem. Is there a problem with it's taking too much time for teachers to find what they need? Well, maybe. Um, but, you know, we had a debate about this in the House of Lords yesterday, and Estelle Morris, the former Secretary of State, uh, and Christine Blow, the former head of the um, National Union of Teachers, as it was then, um, both former teachers, both agreed that, what you love doing as a teacher is lesson planning. You know, yes, it's, yes. It's sort of part of what defines your professionalism and you kind of aligning the curriculum that you're supposed to teach with your kids in your context, in your setting, and sort of working that out is part of the joy of it in many ways. And so finding the right resources for your lesson plan to support you is, is kind of part of the job and part of the joy of the job. 
Yeah. And um, so that justification of this is about saving teachers time. I mean, Estelle was brilliant because she kind of said, well, the reality is the thing that takes teachers time is answering the ridiculous nonsense that comes down from the DfE and Ofsted. <laughs> and yeah. uh, DfE and Ofsted are saying, use this thing we're spending £43 million on so that you've still got time to answer our ridiculous questions. Uh, so I don't think it's that. I think it is control. I think this is about right. the government wanting to control things. And so there are a bunch of people who are opposing it because they don't want teachers to feel like they have to be bound by a a particularly narrow vision around how to teach a narrow knowledge-rich curriculum um, with ever-increasingly sort of more narrow ways of training teachers. In a way, it goes back to this idea that I think started to emerge in the Gove-Gibb years of the coalition government um, in sort of 2010 to, to 15, which was that teaching's a bit of a craft. It's it's not so yes. much of a profession. And you can kind of do teaching by numbers in a way. Um, and, uh, and I think this does undermine respect for the profession and professionalism, uh, which is problematic. And, and you're right, Corinne, I think, goes to this sense that, you know, people aren't as attracted to it as a profession anymore because it's it's not being treated like one. You know, we look at the stats for the numbers leaving secondary teaching, somewhere around 15,800 people left secondary teaching um, in England last year, and we only managed to attract just over 12,000 te- people to train to become secondary teachers in the same year, and, and this is creating a crisis. But anyway, put that to one side. Um, the other big uh, worry, uh, which is what I talked about mostly in my speech in the Lords yesterday, is the worry from education business yes. around what it does to investment. And, you know, I told a story of, uh, I don't know, four years ago or so, when I was part of the senior executive team at Tez, and we were in the middle of selling the business to some other buyers um and it's a sort of beauty parade of uh, lots of very wealthy investors with millions and millions of pounds who want to buy the company and they were asking me repeated questions around the dfe intervening in the recruitment market by starting a teacher vacancy service and they were going well yeah what's it going to do is it going to um take business away from tears is it going to affect the value now you know i told them no, it's not in the end because the government's not very good at understanding the market and it, it, it's not going to get traction and it's not going to work very well. I turned out to be right. But in the end, it still cost us millions because it spooked the investors and it meant that the right. value of the company becomes discounted by those investors because it's another risk that they have to manage. And right now, I'm getting quite a lot of inbound inquiries for advice because, you know, it would appear that uh, one of the larger educational resources companies in this country might be up for sale. And so there are lots of investors looking at it. And what's the question that they're asking me about? What's the government doing investing £43 million in Oak? Uh, yeah, why are they buying a publisher? Are they going to buy other publishers? You know, what's this going to do to the publishing market? And this is going to end up being another 
risk that will discount the amount of investment coming into British business in the educational resources area in this country. And understandably, um, there is legal action now being taken against the government about this formation because of what it's doing to investment and to the commercials of an important, successful part of British business. There's huge economic implications there. And also, going back to the earlier points, huge implications for the quality of what will end up in front of teachers and learners. Because if we don't get the investment into these businesses, then they can't produce the best of the best, which is surely what we want to make available to teachers and learners. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm not saying that I think this is a deliberate act by government or by the people at the top of Oak in order to undermine investment and business. Um, I think it's an unintended consequence of them clumsily right. entering the market. I am more concerned that the intention is, of, is about control, as I talked about earlier. Yes. And if you were very cynical, you would say, well, as we have more and more of a shortage of subject specialists in classrooms, do we need more of what you talked about earlier during a pandemic where you've got supply teachers ending up loving Oak because they can just press play and you get a lesson that's pre-recorded delivered at you and you, know, you don't really have to worry about your subject knowledge. Is that what we want for our kids? I don't think so. And when you look at it, you know, what a lot of the uh, old Oak content is, it's really quite long videos. You know, I was hosting a, a dinner la- at the end of last year with the founder of Geolingo, uh, Louis Van Al, and they have two-minute lessons on Geolingo. Yes. Two minutes, yeah. not 20 minutes on Oak, but these two-minute lessons. And he's saying, well, my competition now is TikTok, and I'm having to look yeah. at whether or not it's feasible to have a 30-second lesson because two minutes is too long for the attention span of learners. Now, I'm not necessarily saying we should go down that road, but I do think that there are some sort of structural fundamental problems around the nature of the content beyond the intention behind that content. Some of the lessons that we've seen goes against the pedagogical approaches that are recommended in cognitive overload in just, as you said, looking at videos constantly so there's a whole range of issues that aren't yeah. considered when you're doing a clickbait curriculum i think i don't know if that's a an expression we can use but you know if we're just going to click and and pick click and pick perhaps yeah. is the the phrase we should use yeah. <laughs> we've and and the, the warriors as well for me is that we've already devalued the profession in many ways and that generosity of spirit from all stakeholders that was seen is going to disappear I should be fair in the interest of balance and say, you know, the defence that was given by the ministers and by one or two supporters was, look, there is no expectation that Oak should be the only source that that, um, will be used. Um, They've explicitly said that where there is a lot of provision uh, in the market, so in phonics, for example, um, Oak will not do anything. They're not going to do anything post-16. You know, they, they were talking about restricting it and then, and, and then being really clear it's not the only source and that they're investing £8 million in, of, of the Oak money in, uh, in other providers. But, you know, what you said earlier about other providers, as long as they hand over the IP and the ownership, is pretty exactly. shocking. 
Um, yeah, so basically, if you're a teacher who wants to create some content for Oak because it's good on your CV or whatever, then fine. And now, then then you hand over your IP. You know, if you if you share resources on Tears on Teachers Pay Teachers on any of those other sorts of platforms, the IP remains your IP. You you carry on owning it. And if you choose to charge money and make some money from it, then that's up to you. That's a very different, I think, better proposition than signing everything over to uh, to a government agency. And will Ofsted, do you think? Because they talked about Ofsted might be sitting on some of these bodies. You know, oh, no. that's a big worry. That's a big worry because of what would come following that. Is that is that? Do you think that's a reality or a possibility or? Where are we on that, Jim? Well, Amanda Spearman, the chief inspector, um, in a speech last year, promoted Oak as being a great thing. Yes. Um, as you've said, there's a lot of Ofsted people involved in the advisory work. I think, however, it, it's a bit of a stretch to believe that inspectors would go around and if they see people who are not complying with standard oak lesson plans and oak lessons that they will be um punished for it it might yeah that obviously everyone's worry is that Ofsted end up saying well there is a particular way that lessons are supposed to be delivered in this country as exemplified by oak and if you're not doing that then we're going to look much more carefully at what you are doing uh, and be more sceptical about about your strategies for teaching and learning. It is a worry. And look, I think there are questions for Ofsted about this. There are wider questions for Ofsted about the quality of inspections, which I think are too variable at the moment. I think um, think they're, frankly, hideously overstretched at the moment and they're not and they're not doing consistently a good job you know i chair a a multi-academy trust i talk to the chairs of other large multi-academy trusts and you know we've all got issues with some complaints most with some inspections most inspections are great and you know the, the the teams do a really good job um and and you know if you deal with them professionally they deal with you professionally and and that's fine and it's all good but there are too many circumstances where it goes wrong and we're putting in complaints and complaints go nowhere and you know who is inspecting mm. offset it's a really good question and really important as well there's a couple of more aspects that i'd like to ask about and i know we're a bit short of time um the first is about the impact of oak on leveling up and access and the second is about data protection Mm. i remember way before the pandemic being asked when i was talking about ai what i thought the worst future was and what i thought the best future was and my kind of dystopian image for the future was students sitting in rooms being taught by computers with some minders but then children from wealthy families going to schools, independent schools, where they had lots of human contact, there was lots of interaction, lots of social interaction, lots of variety. And I always felt when I painted this dystopian vision, I was wrong, it would never happen. 
But I worry that things like Oak, because it's free and because schools are really short of money, could by default become the the technology that, that schools have to use. And if the quality is poor, then are we at risk of creating a real, even more double system? We're not going to close that gap. We're not going to do levelling up. Is there a risk of that? Do you think, Jim and Karine as well, from from your experience? Shall I start, Karine? Yes. Um, I think, uh, look, there there are definite risks around the the system, the school system really creaking at the moment. Yeah, not enough teachers, not enough money, um, not not being able to pay teaching assistants enough so that there are fewer humans in the classroom. Um, and then, and then at the same time, this sort of narrowing of the vision, and the, you know, and this coming from the top as to what good teaching and learning should look like. Yeah, and that um, when as that system really starts to struggle and to to creak, <clears throat> those that will suffer first will be those that are most disadvantaged. Yeah, that that's uh, a sort of a sad, inevitable truth. I, I do incidentally think that there might be a more positive version of what a an arm's length of body for curriculum resources could be, and is mm. worth is worth thinking about. You know, if we didn't have Oak as a publisher and we had an arm's length body, could it be there setting standards for publishers to use around curriculum resources? <clears throat> could it help develop some kind of an API for digital resources so that they become more interoperable and third-party platforms could um, <clears throat> could be could use them and uh, match them to teachers and to to pupils so that it is easier for teachers to find uh, what they want? Is there a role for an arm's length body around around data and that other question that we're going to come on to? I think maybe, you know, Bechter back in the day, you know, abolished back in 2010, did, would have done some of those things. I don't think we need, we, we should revive Bechter as it was, but there might be a role for a different vision of a Bechter as an arm's length body to do some of those things. Maybe it just isn't what they've got in mind for Oak. Yeah, and for me, the levelling up isn't all I can see is the gap getting wider. If you we look, we saw it during COVID, didn't we? The gap with what we've got yeah. in and what we haven't. And my worry is, if we narrow everything, as Jim says, and we become more of an emergency teaching education, which is what it seems to be with this narrow gap, and we lose more and more people, what we're losing is our understanding of teaching, of the professionalism of teaching. And what we're losing is what we're not having. You imagine a lot of um, uh, over the last two years, training has almost there's hardly any training given in school. So all that passion that we had, all that understanding about how children learn um, and metacognition and all that is the stuff that we should be training our, our new teachers in to bring them into the profession. And if we end up with this, you know, click and pick curriculum, how can we, how will it possibly help anybody? Because, you know, we all know, as well as everybody else, that it's just as you said, Rose, what will happen is there'll be two schools of thought. There'll be those that get this wider curriculum with these experiential learning and um, a whole variety of um, uh, activities that will support them to support their communities. And bear in mind, we're making citizens for the future. We want them to support yes. in the world. 
well, if you've got this this two road approach and most of most of the people are on the wrong road, then again, we're narrowing just not the opportunities for young people, but for our future generations and for our future itself. So I have a real worry about that because, you know, the professionals of teachers is understanding um, pedagogies different. And there's hardly any money going into training at all. So if it's all going to go into a resource, what will happen is and that resource then gets recommended or somebody or even if people start pointing to it constantly. Oh, well, you know what you did here. Have a look at this. And you end up start using your work life balance isn't isn't great. But so you can just do and and promoting in all sorts of unseemly ways, not for the right reason. We could end up in a whole different trajectory. And one of the things to remember about um, education in England, it was always held up as a standard because of the stuff that we were doing in England, in England. And, um, you know, still you still have teachers from other countries who want to know what's going on in England. We can't lose it. Education um, has had a big impact on the economy. Corinne, I'm about to take over uh, here in May as the chair of the Council of British International Schools. And you know, British international schooling is a multi-billion pound yes. export. Um, you know, it's it's really significant because, you know, if you, if you think about what England or Britain, you know, and we can have that debate another time, um, is famous for, uh, you know, culture, sport, Education; those are the three things, um, you know, and you know how they all come together in innovation, and uh, and that's what people think of um, when we're thinking about how Britain is defined overseas. And um, uh, you're right that there, there is a real danger. I think you know I, I I'm a, a Labour peer, um, so I think quite a lot at the moment about what might happen at the next general election and the future, you know, change of government. And I really worry that as, you know, even the current prime minister is talking about perhaps some changes to the way we do things post-16 with a baccalaureate. Um, I think an incoming government are likely to want to make some changes. But if we don't have teachers trained and resourced with the range of pedagogic approaches with uh, expertise and assessment with proper professional teaching skills um, then it'll take quite a long time to make any change because you kind of got to reconfigure and retrain the whole system but maybe that's a worry for another day that's a huge point isn't it and really important I don't want to leave this discussion evoke though without coming back to the point about data and governance because yeah. I know Jim, you've been interested in data and privacy, data in interested in data privacy and government governance for a while, and I do think it's something that needs to be talked about with respect to Oak because looking yeah. at what's available publicly on their website, I'd say there are some significant concerns about the way data is being shared and just. You know, one tiny point, but it seems to reflect to me how inadequate um, the provisions are. Um, I looked at the privacy policy and within it, there's an email address where you can um, email and ask to see the data protection policy. So we emailed to see if we could see the data protection policy and got sent back to the privacy policy where the email to request the 
data protection policy was. So yeah. I can only conclude they don't have a data protection policy. Yeah. It certainly wasn't one that I could get hold of. So is this yeah. a worry, Jim? At the moment, it's a worry. I, you know, I asked the minister about it yesterday. She said that, of course, it will comply with data protection law. They're going to take on 80 staff with this 43 million pounds. I, I did the quick maths, incidentally. 43 million pounds is it's a, worth about 1,600 pounds on average per school that they could have spent on yeah. really high quality resources. Um, but anyway, um, maybe one or two of those 80 people will sort that issue out but as i understand it the there are proper questions around oak's intention uh, on collecting data and um, wanting to be able to share that data commercially um, the department of education themselves have been in trouble with the information commissioner's office relatively recently about their data sharing so yeah. um as the, if you like, owner of the arm's length body, we have in DFEs a, an organization that's not very good at this uh, at best and is lax and slack uh, at worst. Um, and we've got a relatively young organization coming in who are yet to get this right, um, as, as you have uncovered. Rose by you know following the email trail and not getting a, a good enough response. So they've got a lot of work to do to reassure people that the data that they're going to collect uh, from schools and teachers about how they're using all these resources um, are going to be handled appropriately. Absolutely. And also that sharing piece is really worrying because if you can't handle your own data how are you going to check that the people that you're sharing that data with are handling their data users won't have a clue where their data has ended up and what's happening with it i find that a huge worry not only is data at the you know of huge value to people developing uh, technology products and ai products within that but it's a great concern around privacy especially children's data and oh, you know in the, in the united states you you just wouldn't get away with it you know they're no they're, they come down on you like a ton of bricks when it comes to student data and, so that's a um, challenge maybe we've got to make data more exciting jim maybe yeah. that's a challenge yeah. <laughs> add the excitement so people want to know about data because it's really important <laughs> i think we i think and the other thing is we've got to make it accessible to children to understand yes. and and can i just say i wrote a piece an article where you can actually do that from very very young children explaining you know through toys if you give your toy away what questions would you ask why why wouldn't you lend it and 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 mm. use that it's really important to start you know training our young people very young uh, as young as we can so that they understand these issues and it can be done in in some um fun ways to do as well yeah I think we should conclude maybe with some questions that we would well, suggest to our listeners that they might ask about Oak Academy. Well, I think that was fascinating. And I think picking up on on, on the end of Jim's talk, the first one should be, what questions should we ask ourselves? So we've got the first one, what's happened to our DEETs? Um, we should ask, do the Oak resources actually meet your vision for learning? Think about that. Important. <laughs> Are the resources relevant to the students in your context? Do they make appropriate connections with your students' knowledge, experience, and identity? That's a really important one. Yeah. 
you know, a valuable resource. And if we think about what we consider a valuable resource to be, um, you know, it's efficient. Does it actually uh, return a good return on your time when you're delivering it to get the impact, your stated impact? Remember, when we Mm. plan lessons, we've got, you know, a goal and impact we've got in mind. And is that resource easy to edit? You know, is it possible to edit it? And perhaps we need to look at how engaging is the material. If this is costing you as a school £800 a year, which is what £43 million works out at, would you pay for it? All the head teachers out there listening, that's one to benchmark against your resource spend. I like it. That's a great way to finish that part of the, the podcast. So we'll now move on. We've got some topical top tech tips and then some questions from listeners before we wrap up. So I'm going to go to Karen first. What is your topical top tech tip? Mine is try one tech at a time, one tech at a time. And then think, why this tech? Why now? And what is the rationale behind your choice? Do not get carried away with everyone's Mm. hype or nothing gets done well. That's a great one. So mine, not surprisingly, is going to be go and try ChatGPT because this is a technology that's here. It's available widely. And this kind of AI is not going away. So have a go. See what you can learn from using it. And in particular, ask it the same question multiple times and see how different or similar the responses you get are, because that will help you to understand the limitations as well as some of the benefits of the sort of technology, the sort of AI that sits between chat GPT and some of the other generative AI programs that are out there. Okay, the last part of the the program is is very much trying to pick up on things that listeners have uh, asked. I I think it's really important and it's a great opportunity for people to send us questions that we'll do our best to answer. So, Karine, I think uh, we've had a question from Kate, and you can tell us a bit more about Kate and her question. Kate actually is uh, a, a secondary, or was a secondary teacher, is now an inspector in Hampshire. Um, Kate Broad, wonderful person. She used to be an or is still an Apple educator, and was um, has been part of the um, group that uh, we've asked questions for support, support group, and she was on Becton many many years ago. So she's got a very good pedigree, but these are questions she's been asked. And so she came, when I asked her about it, she said, these are the ones that I'm mostly asked about. You know, where should I as a new teacher or anybody as a new teacher, new to the profession or not start with ed tech? So I think, first of all, the first place to start is identify what your problem is. What are you trying to solve? Um, And then get the real information that you need. There's a lot of hype out there in terms of... uh, People who speak quite loudly and how to do endorsements, you know, you have the celebrity endorsements. Um, but what you don't have when uh, teachers start want to have a question answer their question about how do you start with ed tech, where do, where do you start with ed tech, is that they often go to people who are on Twitter or social media who speak the loudest. So ignore all that. What's the problem you're trying to solve? What do you, you know, what impact do you want to have? And then you can go and look for the resources and find the quality for the resources. Now, one of the ways to do that, if you're really unsure, is rather than just listening to people who've got the hype, um, go on to have a look at some any tutorials that they've made on YouTube. Can they use it? How have they used it? In what ways have they used it? it so it's not people just recommending each other. They see it in action. 
Because remember, any lesson can be, even if it's recommended, it can be taught in your context and somebody else can teach it and it'll be it'll be the approach and the results will be very different. That is obviously great advice. And, and my sense is very similar around, you've got a bunch of tech that is there for the running the school efficiently um, you know, and that can liberate you to do things differently. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, Ed Val's timetabling software, for example, that can allow, allow you to do really interesting things about it, it, with the timetable kind of on the fly and change things around you know, really quickly. Um, that's a great use of, of, of tech, but not in the classroom. Once you get into the classroom, then, yeah, I think it has to start with, well, what, what's your teaching and learning strategy? What's your curriculum? What, what, do you, what is it that you're trying to achieve, kind of as, as Karim was saying? And then how can tech help? And what are you already using? Are you using that well enough and properly? Do you need to buy something new? If you do think that you might need something new or you might want to know what's out there, you might want to have a look at buying the right ed tech for your school guide that um, I believe EVR have on their website. So, the, so this question is about how do you support parents seeing the benefits of ed tech? And the reason that's been asked is because obviously lots of schools have had issues with parents saying that children are on um, social media too much. It's not real learning. It's taking away conversational time. We're worried about their eyes. Um, and so there's a whole range of issues that go around with that one. When it's done properly, I'm really interested in flipped learning and how we flip the relationship between home and school and use tech at home in order to do some of the more instructional elements so that you've got more human interaction and more human time in the classroom. I think it's possible to tell that story, for example, as a pedagogic approach that embeds the use of technology to allow you to do things radically differently. Um, that works for parents. They can, they can get that. They can go, yeah, actually, rather than my child being on social media at home, um, having them do some of their classwork at home so that when they're in school where phones are probably away if they're allowed at all and they are working together with other learners and with teachers on a human to human level that makes sense to me you know that's a good thing and that actually replicates a little bit of what I might do in my own work context and so coming in on there if I, I'm going to be a bit anecdotal here in my own school, we wanted parents to understand it. And like all schools, you do workshops, don't you? And parents come in. But that is just such a minor thing. What Jim's just said about the real and relevance is important. They need to see young people applying their skills in meaningful ways. And so having children actually utilising the technology. So in even, even down to things like, in the, you know, we see children on front desks, don't we, in school? But do we see them setting up and calibrating the boards in the morning? Do we see them? They set up our radio station in the morning and used it every day to bring other children into school and to run their assemblies. So it had, you know, meaningful, um, uh, there was a meaningful relationship between the ed tech and life and what they were doing. We were reimagining how learning could happen. We were connecting with people across the world. Uh, and parents could see this, meet and tweet. So you meet and tweet out, you know, there was a topical issue of the day. They'd watch news round, come up and they debated it. And then they 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 met together and tweeted it out in a summary version, their, what they believed was their response to the uh, issues of the day. 
And I'm most certainly talking, Kate and I visited our schools a lot at one point. And Kate at the time in the school where she was a secondary teacher, she had a genius bar where teachers could go for help as well as parents could go for help. And they were trialing new tech that was supporting their learning and their understanding. And so what parents then got to see all the time was these meaningful relationships where this tool was being used for a real purpose. And it doesn't start, you can start very young again and be built on. So when parents actually see it in use for meaningful purposes, in meaningful ways to connect, to learn, to develop their metacognition, then parents get excited. I know, Jim, you many years ago attended the Techie Awards where you saw a range of technology being used, didn't you, um, to connect with... Unforgettable it was. to, To see how children actually connected so you know with their lessons on um for uh well-being and religious education all those sorts of things they were connecting with people in different countries and parents could see it live and could come in and work it wasn't superficial and the flip learning is really really important because again what teach what children can do is their own use their own voice as well to develop their own um learning because we have them developing their own explain everything's and again, with the flip learning, as Jim said, they're then applying their learning. And again, parents are seeing it for a purpose, not as an add-on, not as a bolt-on. And that's important. Such great answers. I feel no need to come in and stiff serving myself because I think they're brilliant answers to those two questions. And thank you to Kate for those questions. Uh, unfortunately, that's it for today. Uh, many thanks uh, to Jim for joining Karen and I. It's been lovely to have you on our podcast. Please do send us your questions. We'll always have uh, questions in each of these podcasts and they can be about any aspect of educational technology for any age of learner. And if you want to send us a question, please send it to hello at educateventures.com. That's all one word and we'll put it in the little text that goes alongside uh, this podcast when it goes out for you to enjoy. Ventures for this episode of their collaborative series with the EdTech podcast and to Lanocity for sponsoring this episode. Have a great week. Bye bye.